This is the Life of Jesus podcast with Ben Greenbaum and Mark Elsesser for a full year. We have been looking at the life teachings and works of Jesus from the four Gospels put together in one chronological flow. Ben, last time we looked at the story of the raising of Lazarus and the even bigger issue of Jesus being the resurrection and promising eternal life for all of us. And as Lazarus was raised and and people were coming from everywhere two miles away from Jerusalem, there was a stir happening. So today we look at the stir on steroids with Jesus coming into Jerusalem like a king. And I'm going to call this episode The Ruckus in Jerusalem because really it covers, uh, the podcast today covers a couple of days in the Holy Week life of Jesus. We're, we're, now, we're now at a spot where a lot of the Gospels are dedicated to the last week in the life of Jesus. Just a quick rundown, a week before the resurrection on Sunday is the triumphal entry. On on Monday was the cleansing of the temple. On Tuesday, there was some teaching around the temple. On Wednesday, there was teaching out at the Mount of Olives. On Thursday was the Last Supper. On Friday was the crucifixion. On Saturday, he was dead in the tomb. And on Sunday was the resurrection, Easter resurrection. That's a week and one day. And then you have a little bit of the Gospels dedicated to his resurrection appearances for the next 40 days and his ascension, you know, about a chapter or so of each Gospel. It's interesting that over a quarter of the Gospels are dedicated to the last week of Jesus' life plus his resurrection appearances. Why? I mean, he lived a long life, 30, 35, Three years, however you look at that, three of those in ministry. But that last week gets, uh, I think in some gospels, even 30% of the mm-hmm. attention, 40%. Yeah, so yeah. what is it that it was so important to all four gospel writers to dedicate so much attention to this last week of Jesus' life? I believe because the hyper-focus on the centrality of the cross and the resurrection um, all of Scripture ultimately uh, surrounds itself around the cross and resurrection. And so while Jesus' ministry obviously important as it is uh, displayed throughout the gospel accounts, this is what gets the vast majority of, of hyper-focus. And yet we have folks today who, who say, well, Jesus didn't really die on a cross or he wasn't really raised from the dead. But the Gospels give an inordinate amount of attention to this last week, including those events which we'll be coming to here down the road. So how is it that there are some who are missing it today? Uh, Well, there are those, obviously, who just don't believe, but those self-proclaimed Christians that are missing it, I even read an article by a fellow United Methodist pastor uh, a few weeks ago who, in in reference to the atoning work of Jesus, he, in his article, seeks to dispel it as we understand it. And so one of the things that he he believes or argues uh, in his article is that the, the cross basically was not the intent 
of Jesus's ministry, that it happened uh, by accident, ultimately. Um, and so, yeah, the way the Gospels are set up, uh, even the way Scripture itself is set up in the Old Testament, uh, so many passages pointing uh, to this moment. Um, and that, I think that's another reason why so much of this is uh, covered. The last week of Jesus's life is covered because you have so many elements in the Old Testament pointing uh, to this. And so the triumphal entry, uh, which we're getting ready to talk about, uh, you know, we read Zechariah uh, 9, uh, which points to it about the, the king riding in on a donkey. Um, and so... Yeah, I mean, sometimes people do. They they want to believe what they want to believe. They want to find a means to argue around it uh, because they've got some sort of uh, issue uh, with it, and uh, and and so that's what you get. But the gospels point to a a different thing. Yeah, the gospel writers they were not ambiguous on this. No, they and, were not. And in fact, the rest of the New Testament was very clear that there is a centrality to us fully understanding the death and resurrection of Jesus. They, they matter. And and in in essence, I would say the new Testament authors would probably agree with the statement that everything hinges Mm -hmm. on the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so all of old Testament history, even the birth of Jesus, the life of Jesus point toward those, everything in the rest of new Testament history, even to the modern day points back that's the pivotal period in Jesus' life, which to me is why a quarter or so of the Gospels yep. are dedicated to this last week of Absolutely. his life. Absolutely. Okay, so here we are on the Sunday before he is crucified. He's crucified on a Friday. So this is the Sunday prior to that. And we'll, we'll, we're going to follow the, the narrative in Luke. It's in uh, other Gospels as well. It's in all four of them, the triumphal entry. But we'll follow the one here in the Gospel of Luke today, and it's in Luke chapter 19, verse 28. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, which is just outside the holy city of Jerusalem, He sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? Say, The Lord needs it. (laughs) I like that. That's an interesting thing. Like, that would help me if somebody's stealing my Honda. And like, well, the Lord needs it. <laughs> okay, you can, you can have it. I don't know if some prearranged deal was worked out with this guy or, or if somebody says the, these key words, the Lord, the Lord needs it. You can let them have it. But it worked. Verse 32, those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owner said, why are you untying the colt? And they replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the ground. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. 
Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. This is this is quite a scene. This is this is ticker tape parade. This is inauguration day. This, this is like everything that we see when World Series and Super Bowl champions and we bring them into the city. And have, this this is a moment right in the in the life of Jesus. What is what do you think is going through the the minds of the crowd that are so ramped up in this moment? And they are they are taking off their outer garments and they're laying them down and they're waving branches in the air and they're shouting and singing and and they're just having a they're having a time of it. What's going on here? Uh, first, um, just to mention, since you mentioned your civic, if anybody does come to me and says that the Lord needs my Camry, I will give you my keys. Um, and I won't even call the police. So if you want to invade my Camry, um, have at it. It's probably got a few miles on it, doesn't it? It does almost 230,000, but you know, it's like my dad said, if it ain't broke, don't, don't fix it or don't go buy a new car, but it keeps running. So until the day it dies, it's going to, I'm going to stay. Stay in it. He, Jesus would have probably ridden a Camry in if a donkey hadn't been available. That's right. But this actually, as as it says, it's the, you know, the, this is a, a cult that has never been ridden, never been broken. That's why in Matthew, um, they go and they get not only the donkey, but its mother to keep it calm as Jesus uh, rides in on it. Um, but uh, where we go, oh, the, the scene here, that's where we're at. Um, yeah, I, I think about uh, the enthusiasm around, you know, growing up in South Louisiana, in New Orleans, uh, the, the enthusiasm, the insanity uh, during a Mardi Gras parade or, or when the Saints won the Super Bowl, the just insanity uh, that surrounded uh, that, that parade. Um, and so what we have here is the, the sanctified uh, parade, the sanctified version of that. A sanctified is, Mardi Gras. Yeah, sanctified mm. Mardi Gras. Yeah, wow. Those those things are held in tension. <laughs> um, but a sanctified Mardi Gras, yeah, with the enthusiasm we see. And the, the crowd is ramped up because, you know, many of them would know, if not all of them, would know the prophecy in the Old Testament out of Zechariah. So here comes uh, this this man who the crowd has come out to see because many of them have heard about the miracle he performed uh, with and raising Lazarus from the dead, the word has spread because at this point Jerusalem is packed full of people uh, with the Passover coming, and so you you know you've got whatever the population was in Jerusalem at the time, maybe eighty thousand, and it's 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 you know more than quadrupled with the number of people in Jerusalem, and so you've got this slew of people that are out there excited, believing that the Messiah is entering into town, which means in their mind at this time. He is going to overthrow the Romans and has go- is going to take his seat. This is the triumphal entry where he is going to take his seat on the throne in Jerusalem. It's, it's something that Jesus is aware that is probably happening in their, in their minds. He has no desire, he states it clearly, no desire to set up an earthly kingdom. That's right. No desire to replace the Roman authorities. That's not his goal, but he has to be aware that that is what they're thinking. And that's what they would think when he, when he just jumps on that donkey and they take off and they're fulfilling these old Testament prophecies and he does it anyway. 
Why? Because it's one of those, those, he's the Messiah. And so people can misread Jesus all they want, but, you know, he is who he is. And, uh, and so, you know, the, the people read into, I mean, even, I mean, it's crazy to me, but even after the resurrection, prior to Jesus's ascension, Jesus is getting ready to, to shit, you know, give the last, well, at least in the Acts account, getting ready to give kind of the last, uh, or the commission, the great commission to the apostles, um, to go and to bear witness. And, uh, their, their question to him is basically, is this the time when you're going to, uh, you know, take the throne? Is this the time when your kingdom is going to be established? And so they're even still at that point, post-resurrection thinking temporal kingdom. Um, but Jesus just continues to live into who he is. And in the midst of that, the people continue to misinterpret Christ because they want the Christ that's cut from their own image. They want the Christ uh, that's going to bring them uh, temporal freedom, that's going to restore the land. And yet Jesus also undoubtedly knew that many of these people who were, who were shouting Hosanna would only a few days later be shouting, crucify him. So he enters knowing that they're, they're going to misinterpret him as a, an earthly messiah, a king, when he's really a spiritual messiah, a spiritual king. And they would also, by that disappointment or, or whatever else happened in them, turn on him and see him not as a king but a criminal. Yeah. I mean, when Jesus didn't turn out the way they wanted Jesus to turn out, they, you know, disenchanted with Jesus. Okay. Okay. Is there something for us in this as modern day followers of Christ? When we don't get what we want, God doesn't answer our desires the way we want, that there's a tendency, a temptation for us to make Jesus in our own image, not just like these guys back in the day. But this is a common human response to the nature of God in our lives, isn't it? Yeah, where there are a multitude, again, of self-proclaimed Christians who have this sense that God exists for their good pleasure rather than we existing for his good pleasure, that he has redeemed us, that he has saved us to himself through the work of Christ as a means of setting us free to glorify him and to be renewed into the image of Christ. And so, yeah, there are a multitude of folks that want to reason their way around God's self-revelation to live as they so choose. And in the process of living as they so choose, uh, argue that Jesus is validating it. So that was, that was Sunday. Now let's go to Monday. Mark's gospel says this was the next day but we're going to still follow the Luke narrative. Luke chapter 19, verse 45. When Jesus entered the temple courts, he began to drive out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. In Mark's account, in Mark chapter 11, verse 15, a little bit more information is given about driving them out. Says he was driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, 
it is not written, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. Uh, Ben, if, if he already had people nervous by riding into Jerusalem like as a wannabe king, now he has the Sadducees and these religious authorities, the chief priests, teachers of the law, he has them fuming because he's once again, this is not the first time, he's once again disrupting the way they were doing church and and taking away their authority to enrich themselves by those who are coming for worship. What's happening here? Yeah, and, and on top of that, you know, he, he goes after them and, you know, drives out the money changers and, and the buyers and he, he drives them out because, uh, and they're, they're set up in the, the temple courts where's where the Gentiles uh, would be. And so it's not providing space for those Gentile converts to Judaism to, to worship and to offer prayer. The other thing he says, we get so caught up in him, uh, you know, flipping over tables and, and driving folks out. Uh, we miss where he says, my house will be a house of prayer, mm. but you have made it into a den of robbers. And so he actually uh, aligns temple worship uh, itself with him, which would have a- absolutely, um, you know, I've, uh, you know, obviously the religious leader is going to be upset that he's turning over tables and that he's accusing them basically of praying uh, on the people uh, as people are coming to Jerusalem and they need uh, animals for sacrifice uh, for the Passover. Uh, they're you know they're marking up um, the prices. They're stealing from the people ultimately, and so they're going to be upset with Jesus driving folks out. But the the idea that Christ now has aligned Himself with temple worship, that He's the one, um, that it's His house, they would have absolutely lost their minds over that. And and it goes on in, in Luke nineteen verse forty seven. Every day he was teaching at the temple. Over in Matthew twenty one fourteen, the blind and the lame came to him at the temple, and he healed them. So as all of this is happening, people are coming, he's healing them, he's teaching them. The response in Matthew twenty one fifteen, it says, the chief priests and the teachers of the law were indignant. Back in Luke, that we've been studying, Luke 19, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. So their response was not, you know, okay, this guy's okay, and look what he's doing. He's teaching us about God, teaching us about proper worship. He's healing people. He's ministering to people. But their response, it made them even angrier. They simply wouldn't allow Jesus to be who he was, to put up with what he was doing, to tolerate what he was saying. Rather, they were indignant, and they just wanted to kill him. They wanted him gone. The challenge for them was, in Luke nineteen forty-eight, they could not find any way to do it because all the people hung on his words. So this is a, probably like Monday. He's going to be arrested Thursday night and you know, crucified on Friday. But they've got, they've got to figure out here in the next few days, 
how they can turn the people. Because they're right now, they're for him. He rode in on a donkey. He's raised Lazarus from the dead. He's healing people. He's teaching them. He has, he has the crowd in the palm of his hands. And I would suppose at that moment, he could have stirred the crowd to, to turn on the religious authorities, to turn on the Sanhedrin. I mean, he's got them. Yeah, He I mean, doesn't do that, but they try to do it to him. So what's going on? What we see happening here is that Jesus has upended their traditions. Jesus has upended uh, their ownership over uh, temple worship, and Jesus has upended their authority. And their only response uh, in their minds is they need to find out a way to kill him. Obviously, he is surrounded by the people at this point, and, uh, and so it's going to take an inside man. Um, in order to uh, to rat Jesus out, so they can kind of they're able to arrest him in secret, um, away uh, from the crowds. Uh, but yeah, there. I mean, G, the the other part of this too is that while Jesus has, while there's this constant tension between Jesus and the religious leaders, Jesus really longs for them to turn to him. And so his his idea isn't I want to get rid of these guys. His his heart is is really for them, um, and in confronting them, he wants them to be uh, led to repentance. And we see that, and we saw that earlier in Luke with the story of the prodigal son, because the older brother is representative of the the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the religious leaders that he ultimately is in constant seemingly in constant conflict with, but what we see in, in that parable is that, is that God, the father, the father goes out to the older son, wanting for the older son to be brought into fellowship. And so we've got these guys who see their authority as being upended by Christ. Their response is we need to kill him. And Jesus, who ultimately his authority is being challenged by the religious leaders, his response is, I want them to come to repentance. I think you're exactly right. In fact, what is happening here is who has authority. And in our next podcast, we're going to take a look more deeply at this idea of authority. Who is the one with authority? And that seems to be, if we're moving through the the Holy Week, the last week of Jesus' life, that seems to be the topic of the day on Tuesday. Do you have authority? Who gave you this authority? What, where's the authority come from? And we're going to press into this question in this next, pod, next podcast in a big way because it's all about who has it. And I hope that all of, all of us can think about, meditate on who has authority in my life. Does, does God truly have authority in my life or do I have authority and call on God when I need a favor. It's an interesting thought to ponder for the next week. We'll, we'll address it the best we can when we come back. Folks, we thank you for listening today. If you'd like to continue to learn more about this, just find our, our website or our church lab app like you've been and start in on this year-long pursuit of the life of Jesus. Until then, take care. Mm-hmm.